This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper. Welcome to Country Breakfast. The iconically placid scenes of Dutch farming, landscapes of flowers and greenhouses spotted with windmills is far from the mood among farmers in the Netherlands at the moment. So this morning, we look at the fury behind the Dutch farmer protests. Well, Dutch farmers uh, now are getting uh, angry every day more. Government is not listening. Uh, and what we are fearing for is uh, we have to leave our land. that a little later in the show, but first up, Serena Locke is here to run through this week's biggest rural news. Good morning, Serena. Yes, good morning there, Clint. It's a fast-moving issue, but floods cause many issues for dairy farmers because not only is there the risk of flooded paddocks, but also the loss of power putting a stop to milking. So how are the farmers in Victoria coping with the flooding at the moment? Yes, in their various ways. Some have brought in emergency generators, so that solves the problem of taking the pressure off cows' udders just to get the milking done. But, you know, the cows can be hanging around in mud, risking mastitis or other contamination, let alone the roads being so potholed that they can't get trucks in to take away the milk. And so one farmer in northern Victoria near the Bullock Creek downstream of Pyramid Hill uh, walked his cows 20 kilometres to the mate's farm for milking in preparation for the floods. Dave Poole says they'll have to stay there until the water recedes. Yeah, the first couple of milkings were a bit a bit arduous, but um, they're settling in. Last night we milked them in just a bit over two hours, so I'm expecting this morning they'll be all right. But no, they're starting to settle down now. It's just, you know, I, think, I think I've got 20-odd mastitis cows now, and, and I think we had one when we left. So it's just going to be a a process of working through and um, when everything settles down, it'll be time to go home again, I hope. Well, along the Murray River, other dairy farmers have been counting the cost of losing milk that they can't get to market. Yeah, that's right. So floodwaters uh, means those damaged roads. Dairy trucks can't get access to the farms, particularly the Golden Murray region. Ben Govard is from Dingy and hasn't been able to get a truck to his milk since uh, Thursday the week before. That means he's had to tip out at least 15,000 litres of milk. We may get paid for that milk still. Not sure what will happen there, but any economic loss like that is costly. So it just goes down the drain and into our effluent system, which at the moment, unfortunately, is just the whole system. Like it's, it's all one system of water at the moment. So this will all amount to a big loss of income for flooded dairy farmers in Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania as well. Yeah, that's right. So the Victorian Farmers Federation says it's really quite difficult at the moment to put a figure on the losses from the floods. The VFF president, Emma Germano, has uh, said the damages are in the millions. I've had videos sent to me of entire crops that are just underwater and that for a number of days sitting on a crop will absolutely destroy a crop. Livestock losses are in the thousands at this point in time and we're dumping about a million litres worth of milk a day up in that northeast region of the state. We all saw what happened to fresh produce prices when the floods hit in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland earlier in the year, but these floods have hit crops in another one of Australia's major food bowl across three states and everyone from the Prime Minister down is warning of the inflationary impact. Yeah, and often causes, you know, temporary scarcity until other regions pick up the slack. Yes, uh, so Australians are being warned they can expect higher grocery prices in these coming weeks. Prue Milgate is a grain producer at Serpentine in central Victoria. 
Sadly, 98% of her crop, she said, is underwater. We know from 2016 that the, the crops can survive it. Um, if we get another flood this week, it'll get very interesting, their survival rate. But, I mean, we could be worse. Our hearts are with our friends in the townships who are being flooded through their homes and their businesses. Serena, the ABC has come across what is arguably Australia's most remote crop of wheat. Yes, I mean, while we're getting a deluge in the um, wide band of wheat belts across Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, there is also the wheat belt of WA, don't forget that. That's not necessarily been threatened by such deluge. But there is this one farm 400 kilometres north of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory, and it's not where you'd expect to find Mm. a wheat crop. Paul McLaughlin's farm uh, is uh, normally growing watermelons. But right now, he's focused on harvesting 110 hectares of durum wheat. Now, that goes into pasta, which is under pivot irrigation and has produced some bumper yields. We're looking for a crop to rotate in the uh, winter, like we've been growing mung beans and, um, and peanuts in the summer, and we're looking for crops under the pivots. And, yeah, last year we grew some barley, but we didn't even harvest it. We just sprayed it out because it wasn't worth enough money. But this durum wheat's worth a bit more money and it's growing really well. We're very happy with it. Think of most professions and there's probably a shortage of people in them and it's hoped we can bring in some foreign trained vet nurses to relieve that particular area of shortage. Yes, that's right. Veterinary nurses have now been added to the priority skilled migration list, which had already included vets. Now, this formal recognition means that when vet nurses apply for Australian work visas, they are supposed to get fast-tracked, although we saw with Four Corners there is a big backlog Mm. of visa applications. Now, in regional Australia, the shortage of vets also means operations get delayed or cancelled and some clinics simply can't get the staff. Australian Veterinary Association President Dr Bronwyn Orr says they also need more support for Australians to study and work here. We would like to see HECS forgiveness for rural and regional veterinary graduates. And that's just to try to even the playing field a little bit and make it a bit more competitive for rural and regional veterinary practices to attract staff. We think that it's worked quite well in the medical field. They do it for doctors, nurse practitioners. um, And in Victoria, they even are offering free um, degrees for nurses and midwives to try and ease the pressure there. The plan to phase out caged hens by 2036 is causing some national confusion among egg producers, supermarkets and governments. The animal welfare advocates have called this 15-year phase-out of caged eggs too slow, but uh, the industry says it's not enough time and they're warning that um, the move will cause some extreme egg shortages. Ultimately, each state is going to decide how they want the phase-out of caged eggs to look. Now, Minister for Primary Industries South Australia, Claire Scriven, says... There was an effort for a nationally consistent policy, but supermarkets have already stole the march, really, and that's causing confusion. The reason I think there's some confusion uh, does partly relate to the fact that the major retailers have committed to cage-free eggs from uh, 2025-26 onwards. But the problem for egg producers is that they need a consistent and clear guideline so they can invest in new sheds or in new housing. Um, And Managing Director of Day's Eggs in South Australia, Dion Andre, says there's no transition plan or support for farmers to move to free-range farming. 
in this industry, we need 10 years minimum to try and transition. And I think really nobody's really sat down yet and worked out how that how that is going to happen. And I think from a national perspective, is a little bit uh, fraught with danger. Um, and again, at this stage, these are aspirational targets and we treat them still as aspirational targets that if a particular date is referred to, uh, is it going to be realistic to transition to that date? This next story could be a bit of a chicken or an egg question. <laughs> Australians are developing a taste for what's normally the offcuts of meat, like, like beef cheek, and as a result, the price is going up. Yes, that's the price of most things is going up. Um, but add that to the price of offal and also offcuts. It's not just your prime beef cuts, for example. Cheek meat is up 23% on last month. Goes really nice in the low and slow mm. cooks, those barbecues that are smoky and a popular sort of way to cook um, coming out of the, the North America. Now, at uh, so cheek meat is about $13.50 a kilo, which is an all-time record. Then there's a tallow, which is holding firm at a high price of $2,500 a tonne on the back of high oil prices. So it boggles the mind, really. Now, Meat and Livestock Australia's Jenny Lim reports that demand for beef lips are normally exported to Indonesia, but because of demand from Mexico and the USA, the price is really holding. They're very um, collagen heavy, so great for those soups and stocks, and really big in the Hispanic culture as well um, for a lot of their dishes. So beef lips at the moment are trading at $4.95, so they're holding really firm. Um, we are seeing a great price for halal beef lips as well at $5.38, so it's super interesting in that space, maybe a product that's not traditionally consumed in Australia. Hey, there's been a bit of an agri-political scandal on the other side of the Tasman that started to cause some heads to roll. Yeah, it's a story that begins in 2016-2017 when the husband and son of New Zealand Nationals MP, Barbara Kuriger, the MP for Taranakai King Country, were charged with animal cruelty offences. Now, the charges which related to a herd of cattle that were lame and suffering white blind disease were dropped against her husband, but her son pleaded guilty in 2020. Now, it's a scandal in New Zealand because Ms Kuriger was the national spokesperson for agriculture, and while she was in that position, she was raising concerns about the animal cruelty investigation with the Ministry for Primary Industries, now, as well as speaking about it with the minister. Mm. Now, that's something her leader, Christopher Luxton, said was a serious conflict of interest leading to her resignation from her portfolios as well as an independent investigation into the matter. So quite the political scandal across the ditch. Now, on Tuesday, Mr Luxton faced the press over Ms Kuriger's resignation. It's never, it's never a little bit cute to say that it was an animal welfare issue. I mean, you're talking about the agricultural portfolio, which oversees, if a minister, MPI. Clearly, we know from public reporting that had gone on in the time that you've been in Parliament that there has been issues with MPI. Why is that a question you didn't ask? What I'd say to you is if I was aware of the ongoing nature of the dispute with the family and MPI, if I was aware of Barbara's involvement, that would have been a different conversation. I was unaware of that until we sat down and went through it in detail. Serena, thanks for that wrap of Rural News this week. Good to chat, Clint. Hi, I'm Jonathan Green and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! Yeah, bonjour. How many 
Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? Oh, oh really? That's extraordinary. Thanks. Uh, this and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. Return Ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app. This week, we're dropping in on harvest time at a tea tree plantation. It's part of a family business that's growing the plants for their essential oils to make soaps and other skincare products. We'll head into the paddock with a breeder of a very cute sheep. The woolly-faced baby doll breed are highly sought after among hobby farmers, and they make some pretty attractive lawnmowers too. Plus, we'll meet the former nurse and police officer who are in their first year as farmers, running their own mango orchard and adjusting to life on the land. We've been living by the motto this season that uh, farming is an easy if um, if it was easy everyone would do it so we accept that um, you know there are going to be some challenges and a lot of them are things that are completely out of our control but overall we're pretty excited we've got fruit on the tree I think um, if you're farming um, that's that's what you want to see you want to have product available good looking fruit and um, it'll be ready soon. Gearing up for harvest, we'll meet those farmers who are getting ready and getting excited about picking their first crop of mangoes. That is coming up. First today, we're starting with a warm cuppa. This one's been made by a master tea blender using some unique ingredients. They're the byproducts from a fruit farm that would have otherwise gone to waste. Eliza Burlidge has the story. So when we got it blended, yeah, Belinda, we blended it for us in Adelaide. Yeah, she said recommended 100 degrees, which is essentially what, you, when your kettle boils, that's what it is, so. Yeah, so we'll try it today. When Sue Hewitt boils the kettle and brews a pot of tea, she's infusing flavours that have been sourced from right here on her farm in South Australia's Riverland. So our idea was, as with all of our products, just try to use everything that we produce currently on the block. So instead of thinking that we need to expand and have massive properties everywhere, how can we maximise what we've already got, minimise the water usage? So the next obvious thing for us, because we grow grapes, figs and quinces, was we have a thousand fig trees, so there's a lot of fig leaves. So we're like, okay, why don't we try some fig leaf tea? So that's what we did. We got a, um, I did use a lady in Adelaide called Brewed by Belinda. We sent her some, a test, some dried fig leaves and said, what do you think would go with it? And she blended it with organic rose petals and lemongrass. And now we have our tea, fig leaf and rose tea. Hello, I'm Eliza Burlage and I've sat down for a cuppa with Sue Hewitt. Sue has a history of coming up with ideas for new products to use up the excess produce from her family's fruit block. This fig leaf tea is her latest innovation and she's happy with the result. It's kind of a mix of very refreshing, you know, as soon as you open the bag, the fig leaves have a very coconut or vanilla scent and that's what you can smell, I think, the first thing. When you drink it, you still get a bit of that but then you get the rose and the lemongrass coming through as well. And so what were you doing with the fig leaves before that? Well, they're obviously helping the fig tree grow. <laughs> But nothing. Fig leaves in general, I mean, they used a little bit in Australia and I think increasingly more by more by chefs. So say if you're baking a cake or panna cotta, it really infuses that coconut flavour through the 
your baking. Some chefs make fig leaf oil. We've done some fig leaf powder, which is great in ice cream, divine in ice cream actually. But really essentially we weren't doing anything with the fig leaves apart from growing figs on the trees. So it's just another extra you know, opportunity for us to tell the story of figs. For someone who hasn't seen fig leaves before, what do they look like on the tree at first? Uh, of they're like a big hand actually on the tree. So depending on which fig leaves you pick from, the Smyrna's, so that's our white figs, they will generally have say three or four fingers and they're like a grass green. And actually some of the color is retained, but it does go a little bit darker when you dry it. The black Genoa's are a bit smaller fig leaf and they can have a few more fingers on them. So we just, I mean, we literally just picked them off the tree, sun dried them and then sent them to Belinda and say, do your magic. And that's what she's done. Adelaide tea maker Belinda Hellier says she enjoys working with other small businesses like Miss Heward's to develop unique brews. She says she actually had a few ideas on how to use the fig leaves. I was inspired straight away to sort of start playing with them and initially created a different blend than we ended up going with. I I used some of her Riverland um, dried oranges initially to play with the blend. And then, yeah, when we revisited the project, um, we ended up creating the tea blend that we have today, which I think is a perfect blend for showcasing the very unique flavour of the fig leaves. Have you used before or are you planning to use other parts of plants in future teas? Yeah, I think it's always great to keep an open mind about what's possible and to think outside the box. We're currently collaborating with a winery in the Kunawara region. We have already created a custom blend for them. So the Cabernet grapes, we've taken the leaves and created a blend to sort of give a grape and wine feeling, but through tea. And so that's been a really interesting collaboration. Yeah, using the type, the part of that plant that's not typically used um, in that way. And yeah, open to always kind of thinking about things differently and using other parts of plants. When tea blending, there are sort of typical parts of herbs and teas that are used for creating tea blends, but sometimes it's always good to think about doing it differently. For example, you can use the stems of tea, um, you can use the buds of tea, you can use the leaves, you can all use different parts of the tea plant itself, as well as herbs. Like sometimes you're using like the tops of the herbs, other times it's the roots. So I guess it's good to always just inform yourself about the benefits of the different types uh, parts of the plant and then yeah keeping an open mind about what's possible and being creative so yeah so these are our trees so we've only got the Kensington pride variety these big healthy 30 year old mango trees on this property in the Ord Valley region of Western Australia's Kimberley have been here a lot longer than Beck McMullen and her husband Luke so they're sort of at peak yield very big trees as you can see the couple took over this established mango farm about eight months ago. And while the pair love mangoes and the outdoor lifestyle of farming, running an orchard has been a steep learning curve. My husband and I have no experience in the mango industry other than being very keen consumers of mangoes uh, in the past. This opportunity came up to buy this property sort of end of last year and, and we ran with it and we're learning as we go and it's fabulous. 
G'day, I'm Steph Sinclair. I'm visiting the McMullins at River Farm Mangoes on the banks of the Ord River, just outside of Kununurra. Becoming mango farmers has been quite a career change for Beck, who was working as a nurse, and Luke, who was a police officer. Look, it is really different. I think us personally as well, we've always been really active people. Um, we've always really enjoyed being outside, as well as being as a police officer. Um, I'm also an arborist, um, so uh, I'm used to working sort of amongst trees and outdoors as well. And um, I think we both saw this as a challenge and we both, as, as sort of scary as the challenge might be, we both um, were also really excited by the, uh, the opportunity to take it on and, and go with it. And I guess we do sort of have that safety blanket a little bit. Some farmers aren't so lucky, but um, look, if, if it all falls over for us, um, we've got something we can sort of go back to. And so I think that probably made the decision a little bit, um, a bit easier. So your first season in, how's it going? Yeah, so we are probably another week away from picking our fruit. Um, some growers in the region are ready to rumble. Um, I know that some other regions in Australia have, have started, so we're not far behind. We're ready to go. We're um, excited and we're in hopefully for a really good season. I think um, there's been some strange weather events that have led up uh, this season. Uh, we had a very, very strong flowering through um, late July, August. Um, a lot of growers in the region were very excited by the possibility. But then some um, hot weather uh, has caused a lot of that fruit not to set or the flowers to fall, which is a shame. But I think um, we've been living by the motto this season that uh, farming isn't easy. If, um, if it was easy, everyone would do it. So we accept that um, you know, there are going to be some, some challenges and a lot of them are things that are completely out of our control. But overall, we're pretty excited. We've got fruit on the tree. I think um, if you're farming, um, that's, that's what you want to see. You want to have product available. Um, so really, we're happy in that sense that we got fruit on the tree. It's good looking fruit and time to be ready soon. What have been the main learnings that you've taken away from year one so far? We have gone into this, you know, very green. Um, in the scheme of things. Um, although I've got the background as an arborist in trees and stuff like that and working outdoors, in terms of um, being involved in the agriculture industry, I'm very green. And it's been a lot of learning and a lot of learning quickly. But when we were going down this path and as difficult as it has been initially, I think um, those difficulties like sort of pale in comparison to the fact that if we saw someone else take this opportunity and it wasn't us uh, and someone else really like living our dream, I guess, um, because it is our dream. Um, we are living our dream. That would have been a, a much harder pill to swallow than the sort of difficulties we're having day to day at the moment. And we've got some um, excellent mentors. We've got a very supportive community that, that want to support us and um, and help us through those those difficulties that we're, you know, we're learning every day um, and we learn as things crop up, pardon the pun, but, you know, as things happen, that's when we're learning. It's not, you can't read this from a book. You know, you have to learn and listen and, and look at previous practices and look to the future and, and evolve your thinking. The skills that you have in the police force and in healthcare as a nurse, have you been able to bring any of those to farming? I've certainly been able to bring patients, yeah. <laughs> I've certainly been, um, been very, very patient. And I guess probably, yeah, stress management and able to work in difficult conditions for long hours. They seem to sort of be things that are happening in both of the, the industries at the moment. But um, we've also had to use a little bit of verbal judo, verbal communication in some heated dinner table talks every so often <laughs> as well. What about you, Beck? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, both of our careers have been very, you know, we've had to be very methodical, very open to educating ourselves on best practice. And, and I think, 
in a way that is transferable to farming because, you know, in healthcare and policing and the law, you do have to know what is the right and wrong thing to do. And, um, you know, while it's not so cut and dry in farming, I mean, I think the the main bonus of farming versus our previous careers is that mangoes um, don't talk back to you. <laughs> I mean, like the, the like we we're also accountable at the end of the day. Like we're accountable in our our other jobs, but we're also accountable at the farm. Um, if we're uh, sending fruit to market, we're responsible for that fruit. So we're accountable for sort of growing the best product, packing it in the best method, um, transporting it in um, the best way, um, so that it's really the, the best product at the end of the day. That sense of accountability has changed in what we're accountable for, but we're still always accountable for our actions. What does success look like on the manga farm? What's the dream here? Yeah, well, we, we've chosen this, this lifestyle. So I guess for success for us is that we get to continue it, but also um, we want to have a family that grow up in this lifestyle. We see it you know, on our neighbouring properties and around the valley, um, you know, these kids that are growing up here, um, they're not sitting on their iPads, they're riding quad bikes around and they're out in the garden and they're climbing trees and they're, they're just being kids in this amazing backyard and they're living just such an amazing life. But that's what success looks like to us, is continuing on this, um, this legacy of this great farm. What would your advice be to people in a similar position to you who have had the dream of buying their own property and starting farming? Would you encourage others to do the same? Absolutely. I think that if you've got an opportunity, run with it. Yeah, just do it. Take in, you know, your surroundings, you know, whatever area you're going to be in, you're going to have some very established farms, um, some very knowledgeable people and a lot of resources. So take the time, listen, learn um, and take it all in and, and really assess where you want to be, what your, your end game is and how you want to be living your life. And if that outweighs what you're currently doing, then absolutely do it. Beck and Luke McMullen, who are taking on their first mango harvest at their orchard on the Ord River in WA's Kimberley region, where they spoke to reporter Steph Sinclair. You can read more about Beck and Luke's transition to farming. Just head online to the RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast under Programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you this morning. Still to come, a sheep breeder whose animals tick all the boxes under the cute and fluffy categories and how buying a tea tree plantation helped a family realise a long-time dream. It's harvest time at this native tea tree plantation, a true family operation on the New South Wales mid-north coast. When Alan and Jane Hutchison purchased this 60-hectare property covered in 20-year-old native tea tree plants back in 2018, it put them on the path to fulfilling a long-held dream. We've had a, a contract manufacturing business for, at that stage, 25 23, 25 years. And one of the things we always wanted to do was to create our own brand. And this opportunity came up where where it's totally vertically integrated, where we're actually producing oils from all these wonderful botanical plants that we're planting. Um, and we're using them in our, our manufacturing facility and making our wonderful products using those oils. G'day, I'm Keely Johnson. I'm visiting the Hutchison's freshwater farm near Seal Rocks. For almost three decades, Alan and Jane have operated a business making soap for big companies. 
Now, buying this tea tree farm has given them the opportunity to finally start their very own skincare line using essential oils produced from plants here on the property. We've worked probably for four years on on cleaning it up and starting the, the, the plantation um, with the regeneration. And while that was going on, we were also planting um, a whole heap of botanical plants, like mostly lemon myrtle, but we've planted out other botanicals like kunzia and saltbush. At the moment, we're working on preparing uh, an area for about 4,000 Melaleuca ericifolia, which is, a lot of people know that as Rosalina, and we see that as one of our new um, oils and new products that we'll launch in probably 12, 18 months' time. Al studied food science at university and later did a horticulture course. He says the farm allows him to put his skills into action. And the knowledge of, of plants and, and propagation and, and all those things that I learnt in that urban horticulture course, you know, have played out um, quite a few years later, but um, in, in this farm. And it's great for me because I love it, because I grew up on a farm and, and, and I missed it when we didn't have it. And, um, and so to be able to come up here, I, I get away up here as much as I can. The plants are mechanically harvested and processed on the farm. So this steam is coming out of that pipe there, going along here, and then through this hose that's connected to the bottom of the, the bin. The essential oils are extracted from the trees and poured into large barrels, which Al transports about three hours south of the property to his factory in Sydney. The business is a family affair involving their children and their children's partners. The Hutchison's son-in-law, Grant Dempsey, oversees contract production, as well as that of about 40 of their own products that incorporate essential oils from the farm. So basically we, we receive the essential oils um, at, the, at the factory in, um, on the northern beaches. We basically get allocated to the products and we process them and, yeah, and they, they basically leave us shelf ready. The Hutchison's goal was always to get their products on supermarket shelves. Their son, Sam Hutchison, who is the business's sales director, helped make that happen, but says competing with global brands is a constant battle for the family. It was a difficult process, you know, getting in there and getting in the door and, you know, day to day it's, it's full on, and, but I guess the hardest thing is, is staying there. And like being a small business and being at the mercy of huge businesses is hard. It, it's stressful and we, you know, rely on Australians to go in there and pick quality Australian-made products, you know, over mass market stuff that, that's made overseas. Sam's wife, Annie Hutchison, says getting their locally made message across is difficult. There's no way to say, if we're made locally, you know, you can't little put a gold sticker on the yeah. your local Woolies and say, yeah, we're close <laughs> by. But um, I think once people understand that, they're so um, much more likely to give you products a try, which is nice. The Hutchison's daughter, Amy Dempsey, is a business manager and said ensuring their company is sustainable was really important. So we have body washes, we have bar soaps, we've got conditioner bars, shampoo bars. We've recently just launched our glass bottles, refillable glass bottles, and our pouches, refillable pouches. Um, these save about 80% of plastic, so when you can refill it, your bottle twice with them. It's so important for us to be sustainable. It's like, it's, yeah, it's really important. 
Handwash also comes in clear glass and plastic bottles, which can be recycled, and online orders are sent in plastic-free packaging. And recycling is just as important on the farm. Once you've fin we've finished cooking the, the tea tree or the lemon myrtle or whatever, um, we have um, the, the biomass, which we compost, and then we put back onto, onto the plantation. Um, and so we reuse it. And we just want to tread lightly, you know. Um, one of the things I don't want the farm to be is uh, an immaculately manicured place um, where nothing's out of place. There you go, my darling. Oh, <laughs> very good. When Jane isn't helping on the farm, she's doing the finances. She says family is at the heart of their farming business. Having our kids come on board has just been fantastic. Their partners have also been able to join our business, bringing a completely different set of skill sets. So we've all got our own areas that we work in. So we're very lucky that we're able to incorporate the family into the business. When Deb Royans decided to start breeding Southdown baby doll sheep, she didn't realise they would take off in popularity. I was looking around for a breed of sheep. I've had sheep before, probably for about 20 years now, um, mostly merinos and dorpers. So I was looking for a really unique looking little breed, one that I could get into um, showing um, as a stud and one that we could bring through the colour because it's really something we was really very interested in. So we looked around and um, saw this breed. There wasn't very many of them around at that time. And uh, the name Baby Doll Southdown wasn't official at that time. They were just called Southdown. And um, so I thought I was looking for a really small, docile, easy to handle uh, animal that um, would appeal to the public and uh, to the wider market. So we went for Baby Dolls. Mm -hmm. um, after a lot of research, that's what we, we picked up. Hello, I'm Ellie Honeybone. I'm chatting to Deb Royans at her picturesque property at Pinjara, about 80 kilometres south of Perth, where she and her husband Jeff run Tanjar Baby Doll South Down Stud. While these sheep are incredibly popular right now among hobby farmers for their very cute appearance, Deb says the breed has been in Australia for quite some time. Being a British breed, um, they came over to Australia in the 1790s they had the wool on their faces. So they got woolly faces, woolly legs, um, wool on their ears, wool around the bridge of their nose. And that's what's carried on. In Australia, we mostly breed animals that have got clean faces and clean legs to fit our Australian conditions. So the baby dolls managed to survive all this time with the management of the woolly faces and, and that, which is what people want these days. Uh, and they're looking at something a little bit different and, uh, and they don't seem to mind it. She's now become the only registered breeder of black baby dolls in Australia. I'm probably the only one who's got to this stage, uh, the first one to, to, to make the purebred coloured registered stud uh, baby doll Southdown in Australia at this time. But there's plenty of others um, coming up through the ranks. So what exactly are Southdown baby doll sheep used for? Deb explains that in addition to meat, baby dolls are a highly sought-after family pet, hobby farm addition and vineyard lawnmower. 
So they go as the stud. So a lot of people are registering as a, as stud these days. Um, a lot of new breeders are interested in in being a stud breeder. So that makes up most of our market. And then they've got wineries and vineyards. They're looking for a small um, animal, one that's um, compact but can't reach the vines. So the baby doll, being only under the 60 centimetres, 60, 62 centimetres, fits that that perfectly for them because they're not a very tall breeder, a miniature sheep. And um, then we've made up with uh, pets and uh, tourism. A lot of people want to have them to showcase them at their tourist and accommodations. And then there's the hobby farmers, um, small markets, people just, uh, small acreages wanting a small little lamb, small little sheep that they can handle easily on, on five acre lots. This breed could easily take on the title of Australia's cutest sheep with fluffy old man faces and knee-high furry Ugg boots occurring naturally when they are lambs. Deb calls them the Benjamin Button sheep and also the Labradors of the sheep world. So I originally had horses. Um, so I had horses when I was younger and grew up and had them through my married life. And um, just thought, no, nah, we'll get into sheep because it's a more versatile breed, more interesting, um, more opportunities there for us at the time. And yeah, no, I just love it. It's a, it's a great, this is a great little breed. I'm really happy with it. It's very docile, easy to handle, and uh, they're just fantastic. A uh, little breed to, to, to go on with. Come on! Come on! Deb Royans, who breeds a variety of sheep known as Southdown Baby Dolls. You can see just what they look like with a video of those sheep and some new little lambs. You'll find it on the RN homepage. Just look for Country Breakfast under Programs. Australia, we have a problem. Nearly 50% of Australians are living with long-term illness. Magda Zemanski is here to check our pulse. Am I the only one who feels like this? To find out what's making us sick. This is concentrated sugar. And what you can do to improve your health. I will not stop until I have got us the answers that we need. Magda's big national health check. <laughs> Starts Tuesday, November 1st on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It looks like Australia is about to sign up to a global pledge to cut methane emissions, while in New Zealand the government is considering a tax on farmers to force emissions down there. Barnaby Joyce is saying policies like that will lead to a big cut in the size of the Australian herd. Labor's dismissed that claim, but the battle over emissions has already been playing out over the last few years in the Netherlands, where the government announced it wants to cut emissions of nitrogen and ammonia by 50% in just eight years. And that means buying back farms now to cut the herd back by 30%. Dutch farmers have been protesting in the streets, as David Clawton reports. Well, Dutch farmers uh, now are getting uh, angry every day more. Government is not listening. Uh, and what we are fearing for is uh, we have to leave our land. And that's also uh, uh, every solution we uh, came on with. They don't take it, uh, and what we see right now, when we have to reduce our uh, national herd, when we have to reduce our herds by ourselves, farms will break down. On this moment, when the, the plan of the government is coming through, probably 30, 40, 50 percent of the farmers have to fear for the future. That's why we're on the streets, that's why we're protesting, and we're warning you all over Europe, this problem, which is here in Holland, can be your problem in the next years. 
That's Sharon van Manen from the Dutch Dairy Farmers Association, who posted a YouTube video in 2019 responding to the decision to cut emissions. Farmers took to the streets to block roads with their tractors. They dumped garbage, including asbestos, on highways and torched bales of hay. For journalist Mark von Steren, who's the son of a Dutch farmer, they went too far. I was a bit ashamed uh, of those protests. Uh, because I, I can understand uh, what is the problem, uh, but uh, they were going too far with... Uh, uh, ruining tanks, they uh, burned tanks on the street. Uh, they threatened uh, a minister. Yeah, if you do, if you uh, go with a lot of tractors to the uh, private house of a minister to uh, threaten her and her family, I think you go too far. Sjoerd Hofstee is a rural reporter in the Netherlands and a member of the International Federation of Journalists. He's also been reporting on events there. The protest started, let's say, three years ago that uh, the highest Dutch court said current policy were not protecting the natural areas good enough. And then we're talking mainly about uh, nitrogen, uh, nitri- nitrogen compounds due to ammonia, um, which comes from livestock keeping. And um, this would say that uh, the emissions had to be decreased yeah, drastically in such a way that uh, farmers said, yeah, this, this goes far too far and too fast. And there the first protest uh, started. Uh, but in uh, June this year, 2022, um, there came a yeah, new policy, so to say. They talked about it for almost three years and then the government came again okay, we, we, we figured it out how we uh, want to do it. We want to um, uh, decrease uh, all the emissions by 50% due to 2030. So it's only eight years from now. And uh, that made that there came another, uh, yeah, another flow of protests, all, all, all kind of. And how much did that disrupt Dutch society, do you think? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, uh, so we're talking about farmers' protests, but a lot of people who are living on in, in, on the rural areas, they have the feeling that uh, the, the the government, um, yeah, th- that they're regulating how to deal with the rural area, and um, so this is not only a battle between the farmers and the the government but it's also uh, struggling between yeah who has the rights on the countryside this year the government in the netherlands made a decision about how to cut emissions and it was another big shock for farmers mark von steren again now they came with a, a, a solution they want to uh, buy or uh, 500 to 600 peak polluters of nitrogen big polluters they mm. want to yeah, yeah, they want to buy them out or uh, other solutions, but they need to stop within one year. That That's the solution. Australian Andrew McKillop was there at the same time in June this year, looking at agriculture with a group of Nuffield scholars. He works for Avolution, a big avocado export company, and he got to see the differences in the farming systems used in the Netherlands. It was my first time there, and it was, um, it was quite eye-opening from the point of view that um, you know, over 
50% of the country sits at four metres below sea level. Farmers pay for the government to manage the water off their farms, not onto their farms. So, you know, there's it's, it's about water management and it's about a number of things, but in situations like that where you've got a lot of nitrogen being either applied or not or a lot of nitrogen and ammonia being produced, well, you know, something has to give somewhere. And they're you producing know, a lot of nitrogen because they, they have a lot of their livestock in, in barns, don't they? And, and, and they're sort of correct. using it, they're taking the manure of, and, and putting it onto their fields. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's exactly right. You've got to look at um, the systems that, that, that they're running and you look at the, um, the animal industry in particular, the dairy industry, which is quite big in the Netherlands, the vast majority of it is um, barn-fed animals and they need to grow crops for that. So they take the, they take the waste from the, from the barns, um, which are all moving floor-type scenarios, and they, um, they spread that out through their fields and that's their fertiliser for the year for the, to be able to grow their crops. And, um, you know, they're now being told they can't use that anymore. Depending on where you are in the Netherlands, some of those areas that they're wanting a 95% reduction in the use of the use and application of nitrogen of manure, effectively. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's pretty scary when you think about it. A 95% reduction. You may as well eliminate it altogether. It's likely that the protests will start again as farmers run out of time. Sherwood Hofstay doesn't think they have much chance of keeping their farms. I think in the end uh, the farmers will lose this battle. Um, we had last uh, weeks, uh, months, a mediator uh, between the farmers and the government. He did quite a good job, but in the end his uh, conclusion was as well, we, we stick more or less to the plan for this um, reduction percentage of uh, 50% in 2030. Do you think the farmers will be back in the streets anytime soon over all of this? When, when does the crunch time come and the government start buying back properties? I think they will come back to the streets because when it comes to really buying out, then you can imagine then you have a lot of stress again and this makes that especially some more let's say radical groups of farmers, they will say this they absolutely crossed the line and we going to protest again. And while farming systems and the debate over sustainability is very different in Australia, Andrew McKillop has this warning for farmers about what could be coming down the policy pipeline. It's a never-ending minefield. I mean, any farmer who's not looking to reduce their, their fungicide, pesticide or chemical use and or fertiliser use is probably not really keeping an eye on their, on their bottom line at the moment because the costs of those things, as we know, post-COVID or during COVID have skyrocketed and... Um, You've but if they're not that, paying attention to the economics, they, they perhaps ought to consider the politics of some of these things that could That's be coming. Exactly right. Andrew McKillop ending that report by David Clawton. Not long ago, a US law firm, Hogan Lovells, polled 600 companies around the world asking about their environmental, social and governance compliance. Over 80% said ESG risk management was a top priority for them. And it's a conversation happening here too, to the extent that earlier this week, a roundtable hosted by the Australian Farm Institute attracted 200 people in agribusinesses keen to hear more about this emerging area of corporate reporting. And since the long, complex and sometimes opaque supply chains in agriculture touch on a multitude of environmental, human rights and overseas regulatory issues, 
I wanted to get a sense of where Australian agribusiness was at with ESG capability from the Australian Farm Institute's Katie McRobert. My first question was how it actually differs from the existing strategies companies have for things like emissions reductions, bribery and human rights. They don't really differ. They are actually complementary. And an ESG strategy looks into, as you mentioned, it's about environmental stewardship. There's the E. It's about your social responsibility for the S and then good governance for the G. So it's more about having a system in place where you're checking in on these things because what does tend to happen is that um, companies or organisations can get quite focused on one of those aspects, understandably so. It's a, it's a good sort of entry point to start thinking beyond your financial reporting and, and to otherwise you're impacting on the world, on society and the economy, but also on how that's feeding back into your business. So ESG is just providing a framework for people to consider those things a bit more holistically, how they all tie in together. So generally speaking, there's been a lot of focus on emissions reporting, emissions reduction for obvious reasons. ESG looks more broadly beyond emissions to the wider environmental impact, but also how you're treating people and how you're running your business responsibly. And in a, a business, a corporate structure, whose job is this? Mm, that's an excellent question. Look, there's an increasing number of people who are actually being employed to do just this. Uh, but I did hear someone who's an expert in this field lamenting the other day that uh, there are a lot of people who are getting the title of ESG manager or sustainability manager who have no background in the E, very little uh, understanding of the S and absolutely no capacity in the G. <laughs> so it's something that's still very much a nascent uh, part of reporting in businesses. In the USA, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which I guess the equivalent in Australia would be something like ASIC, has established yeah. a climate and ESG task force recently. Is there anything similar happening among the regulators in Australia? Yeah, look, there's a very strong push by the regulators in Australia to look closely at greenwashing. The problem with ESG as a, as a concept and being so new and something that's quite attractive to to people to adopt is that it, there's no strict formula for how it should be done. So there, there is quite a bit of greenwashing going on out there. People are adopting the ideals of ESG and saying that we are socially responsible without actually being able to provide data behind that or looking at actual measurable targets for what this progress means to the organisation. And that's definitely true inside agriculture as much as it is outside agriculture. So the um, Australian Institute of Company Directors has been very focused on greenwashing the past six months. I know that ACCC is looking in the next couple of months specifically at people's claims around what their ESG metrics are as opposed to what they're actually doing on the ground. And when we're talking about ESG reporting, are we talking about including those metrics, you know, when companies file their, their annual reports or half-yearly updates alongside their key financial data as well? Yeah, that's exactly right. So they, they don't go into reports uh, as an addendum to the annual reports at the moment. And most companies these days, most large companies at least, will provide some sort of sustainability report attached to their annual reports. But again, there's there's all sorts of different um scales of robustness, shall we say, on whether or not those are meaningful or whether those are aspirational or whether they are just a report without much behind it. Where's Australian agribusiness at in terms of the adoption of, I guess, uh, the more rigorous form of this? Look, it's a little all over the place at the moment. There's certainly a great deal of interest. And uh, as I said earlier, it's not just inside agriculture, it's outside as well. But at the conference that the Australian Farm Institute ran on this very topic, there were 250 people in the room who were asked whether they thought Australian agriculture was leading or lagging on ESG reporting and ESG accountability. And it was a very mixed response. 
there are some areas where Australian agribusiness is leading. There are a lot of areas where it's lagging and there's not a lot of clarity or transparency on how meaningful that really is. So awareness is very high, I'll say that, and that's a good thing. If people are thinking about these things and they're, they're open to discussing them and they want to know more, that's that's a, definitely a step in the right direction. But, yeah, there's there's still quite a way to go in terms of actually being directly accountable for the difference between what businesses are saying they want to do and what they're actually able to do. Is it a daunting task? I don't want to single any uh, company or commodity out, but if I think of just a fibre supply chain, that veers in, once it leaves the farm, it veers into some very opaque areas as it's turned into a textile. So does that kind of um, present a daunting task to agribusinesses in that particular field about where their responsibility starts and ends? Yeah, absolutely. The complexity of your agricultural production is one of the barriers to people adopting this more widely. And, and how far you go up and down the supply chain isn't set in stone. So it's up to a different business to decide. We're reporting to the farm gate and stopping or we're reporting on the supply chain itself or we're reporting all the way through our scope threes. It, it's really up to the individual business. But yes, that the complexity, you've hit the nail on the head there, can make it quite overwhelming. So recommendations that we heard at this conference uh, that we held was around just starting somewhere and seeing where that takes you. And as much as anything, ESG reporting is about telling people what it is your business wants to do. It's also about identifying for your own business what the gaps might be and where you need to pay more attention. So uh, along those lines, the sustainability framework for all of agriculture that the Farm Institute's been working on with the NFF and others is um, is about setting those lights on the hill where you can see here's an area we are doing well, we can tell people more about it and it's doing our business good and, and we're giving good back to society. But also here's some areas that we've, we've not paid enough attention to and we know people want to know more about these things. These are principles that matter to the community and we've got to pay more attention on where our business might not be meeting those responsibilities as well as it could be. And just finally, Katie McRobert, you mentioned starting somewhere. What are the risks of not starting somewhere, you know, getting the organisation thinking about ESG reporting and compliance now? The bottom line is that it's a risk to your own organisation. If you're not thinking about what your social responsibility, your environmental impact is, then you've put your own business at risk because all of these things matter to you as an organisation. You're drawing on social capital, you're drawing on natural capital every single day, but also in, in a more immediate direct hip pocket sense. Um, Certainly all the major financial institutions are looking very closely at ESG reporting for their clientele and access to finance is going to be pretty tricky in the next couple of years if you can't demonstrate some sort of accountability on those ESG metrics. Katie McRobert is the Managing Director of the Australian Farm Institute, which hosted the ESG Roundtable earlier this week. Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Tim Simons all helped bring Country Breakfast together this week. And some of the best-in-class radio is just ahead, so stay tuned to ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.